0: Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 29th of November 2019. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, the great revolt that threatens the power and survival of the banks and who most terrifies the five-eyed monster. So firstly today the great revolt that threatens the power and survival of the banks. So we have uh, some very interesting news over the last week um, which means in effect that the effort to lock in policies to save the banks as this global financial system comes down is running into serious trouble. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a revolt happening from within the rank and file of the Liberal Party against the bill that their party, the government, is putting forward to ban cash transactions over $10,000. Now this uh, came up last Saturday with the Liberal Party state Council in Ballarat, where a motion was put forward by a Liberal Party member uh, that the government should junk this bill. And that passed with about 98% support of the members voting, um, which is an overwhelming um, slamming Mm. of what the Liberal Party government is doing Mm. here. And of course, to note, the Liberal Party has traditionally been the party representing the bankers Mm. in this country's history but the members of the party today do not trust the banks and they've got good reason for that. Um, So this motion is not binding on the party, however uh, there's a lot of talk about pre-selections coming up and how that will make an impact and Victoria is a state where for instance the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, personally intervened to make sure Senator Jane Hume, the Senator representing the banks and who has been the head of, was the head of the Committee uh, on Economics when the legislation for bail-in to save the banks by stealing people's depositors' money was ushered in. Um, so he had to intervene to make sure she got pre-selection last time. So this can be a very, very big issue. Uh, Now the motion or the relevant part of the motion, I'll just quote, that was put forward said that banning cash is an illiberal policy that erodes civil liberties and conflicts with our party's fundamental principles of individual freedom and free enterprise. The legislation forces people into private banks to transact purportedly to curb crime which is a state issue this bill will actually expose individuals to prosecution and other objectionable government policies, including negative interest rates and deposit bail-in. So this was very important. Uh, there, were, there was a debate about it, which there were some very interesting perspectives put forward. Uh, one of those was tweeted by a uh, reporter for The Australian who was there, although who didn't actually end up reporting on it in the press, uh, who quoted... One of the Liberal Party members saying, his message to the Treasurer was, get out of my wallet. And we'll put that up on the screen.
1: It was interesting that Frydenberg, Josh Frydenberg, the Treasurer, and Sukkar, actually left the meeting before this motion came up. So they didn't want to wear the heat yeah. of the of this large audience of over 400 people. So,
0: But there's no doubt they will be feeling they the heat. They will
1: feel the heat, definitely. Absolutely.
0: Um, Now as I said there hadn't been any coverage of this however today's Sydney Morning Herald has finally covered it and they actually spoke to the Liberal member Steve Holland who moved the motion and also just to note um, that there was actually an effort in the Queensland State Council meeting albeit a last minute effort where um, one member put on the table a motion to Um, to have it on the agenda, to have this issue put on the agenda. It didn't succeed because it needed a two-thirds vote and they only got 50% but that's extremely good that it even got 50% because there'd been no pre-preparation for that. So in other words it's coming up and it's going to keep coming up in more and more places. Now the other news to report um, this week which is very interesting is that the Senate committee which has conducted the inquiry into this bill Uh, released the submissions or uh, some of them and uh, they announced in that uh, post on their website that there were 2,600 submissions which is extraordinary for such an inquiry Uh, but only 146 were published. The rest they designated as so-called correspondence and uh, said they wouldn't publish it but that didn't just include brief letters and emails, Uh, that included initially uh, such submissions as that of Melissa Harrison, who wrote a 75-page, very detailed submission, and Bob Butler, uh, a solicitor, who's written a lot of the detailed background on the danger of such bills as this as the ba- and the bail-in bill. And you, I believe you were contacted, of course, Craig, by yeah. the uh, Secretary of the Committee, because they had two points of contention that we'd put out a media release saying, uh, one, that they'd suppress the submissions, And secondly, that um, we said Melissa Harrison's had been suppressed, which by then they had published, but initially it hadn't been. And she'd been told by the committee that the reason it wasn't published is that it had material in it that was extraneous to the the actual bill being inquired upon.
1: That's exactly the whole reason why you have a committee process in the first place, because what the committee may consider extraneous may be substantive in terms of the legislation. Mm. So you, d- you, you can't have someone arbitrarily saying, and in this case it could be the Secretary of the Committee saying, oh, that's not relevant because, in my opinion, mm. it doesn't address the bill. Hang on a sec. Who's he to say that? That's right. And, in fact, in the, in, in the, according to Melissa's work, you know, when you look at the actual way that committees are supposed to yeah. handle things, That's exactly what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to take a wide range of views Mm. and and there's no reason not to publish them unless, of course, they're they're highly defamatory or there's some legal reason not to do it.
0: Exactly. Like she actually said, she pulled this together. Uh, According to the parliamentary websites, inquiries by committees allow citizens to air grievances. Uh, The orderly gathering of evidence by committees and the provision of a forum for all views... Consideration of issues on their merits and development of recommendations acceptable to all sides is part of that process. Uh, it may not be until all the evidence has been gathered that unintended consequences or unforeseen problems with a bill emerge. And committees provide a public forum for the presentation of the various views of individual citizens and interest groups. This is all these are all quotes from parliamentary websites that pertain to the work of such parliamentary uh, committees.
1: Yeah, and I think, at least the, um, the, the fact is that individual citizens have gone to so much effort to put a submission in out. The, you know, the Secretary was wanting, wanting to dismiss the idea, oh, these are just form letters. Well, we know they weren't form letters. These no. were individual expressions on the issue, right? Now, what they're really reeling about is the number. Yeah. 2,600. I mean, these committees usually get maybe 35 or 40. Mm-hmm. 2,600 submissions shows you how hot this issue is and how politically hot it is. I mean, you've got mm. the Liberal Party voting against it. Look, the, the other problem is that, you know, 95% of the population doesn't realise this legislation's coming up.
2: Mm.
1: And we've already got this huge tsunami effect of dissent against the bill, of hate for the bill, actually. Mm. And the general population doesn't know about this?
0: Well, it would have already been law had not various organisations such as ourselves really made a song and dance about it. It would have already been passed. We've got
1: a lot more work to do on this in the next two months. I mean, the the whole uh, committee process doesn't complete itself until they report back in February. So there's two months for people to really, you know, become familiar with what the issues are. Mm. It's all on our website. And then go and meet their MP. Yes. Bring it to the MP's attention. Look... Reality is a lot of MPs don't know what's happening in their own parliament because they're so swamped with their own their own issues usually that these sort of important issues should get swept aside because they don't know about it. The party, the party also, yeah. given that Josh Frydberg and Michael Sucker they walked out of the meeting, mm. they have no interest in letting the rest of their members mm. actually know what's going on here. And in fact, we found out in the, this week. Uh, Robbie Barwick, you know, presenter of this program, was up in Parliament. And he, he was saying that uh, he was actually briefing someone about the fact that uh, the Liberal Party was uh, had passed this motion. Mm-hmm. And there was a sarcastic rem- remark from another member of Parliament walking past, say, oh, the Liberal Party would never do that, mm. right? Yeah. And I mean, this is, this is the sort of the problems you're up against, is that most of the members of Parliament have no idea what's going on in these sort of issues.
0: Exactly. So make sure you contact your MP, whether you ring them, go and visit them, get a delegation together, which you can contact us to get involved in. Um, But it has a very big impact. Don't worry if you've already done it a dozen times before, do it again. Um, The political sands are shifting dramatically and you see that just in the last 24, 48 hours where look at how freaked out the government was when One Nation, the two One Nation Senators and Jackie Lambie voted with the Labor Party against the union bill Um, to stop this so-called three transgressions of the new code they want to put up and they'll be deregistered. Of course, Pauline Hanson said, well, you know, um, how many strikes was it against the uh, Westpac Bank? 23 million breaches. And they're still not out, and yet this is what you want to bring in against the the groups representing workers. So she said workers come first here. Um, But, of course, you know, what... uh, these um, Matthias Cormann and so forth are complaining about, the the government members, um, they should remember that when the bail-in bill passed, they had promised Pauline Hanson and One Nation that they were going to look at putting an amendment to the bail-in bill to explicitly prevent deposits being bailed in in the wording of the legislation. Mm -hmm. And they did the dirty on them and and they rammed the bill through before... Uh, one nation even knew it was on the floor of Parliament. So they deserve everything they get. Now we'll have to take a quick break, but we're going to be right back to discuss the new moves or push towards quantitative easing. Welcome back to the Citizens Report where we're discussing the great revolt against the banks and there's more to come uh, because we had the Head of the Reserve Bank, Philip Lowe, this week giving a speech At the Australian Business Economist dinner and he was really doing a good old seesaw act Craig because on the one hand he was saying everything is fine at the moment no need to do anything unconventional here and then on the other hand however if markets become dysfunctional we are ready I don't expect to get there but All options are on
1: the table. I heard him say specifically, oh, we're not going to go down the road of negative interest rates. And I'm thinking, well, who's he? I mean, he's just a figurehead of the bank. He gets replaced.
0: He'll be told what to do anyway. He'll be
1: told what to do. He gets replaced and all of a sudden, oh, negative interest rates are on the table. And the next next um, Reserve Bank chairman
0: Mm. comes along
1: and says, well, that's what he thought. This is not what we're going to do, so there's no guarantees in this.
0: And his reason why we wouldn't be going down that pathway anyway is that our growth prospects are stronger and our banks are in much better shape than those in Europe or Japan. And anyone who knows anything about the Australian banking system knows that ain't true. We've just covered it up a bit better. Um, But he said that quantitative easing will become an option to be considered by the Reserve Bank at a cash rate of 0.25%. And that's only two cuts away because we're at 075 now. He said, at a cash rate of 0.25%, the interest rate paid on surplus balances at the Reserve Bank would already be at zero. So from that perspective, we would, at that point, be dealing with zero interest rates. And, you know, our question is, are we really heading down this pathway again quantitative easing didn't work the first time they haven't been able to unwind it it's impossible to to go back from um, and the economic impact of it is very very questionable apart from inflating asset bubbles um, the reserve bank says quantitative easing boosts employment and incomes but because it's directed into banks the question always comes back to what those banks do with it which comes back to government's Mm. policy which does not encourage real productive activity in fact it encourages shutting down real productive activity and i want to show two video clips from the u.s federal reserve and from the bank of england where they these are explanatory videos about quantitative easing where they both admit that it doesn't flow effectively the money through into the real economy so the first video here Um, which explains from the Fed that they print money out of thin air electronically in the first place, but also says in turn that it depends on what the banks do with it.
2: You may wonder how the Fed pays for the bonds and other securities it buys. The Fed does not pay with paper money. Instead, the Fed pays the seller's bank using newly created electronic funds, and the bank adds those funds to the seller's account. The seller can spend the funds, or can simply leave them in the bank. If the funds stay in the bank, then the bank can increase its lending, purchase more assets, or build up the reserves it holds on deposit at the Fed. More broadly, the Fed's securities purchases increase the total amount of reserves that the banking system keeps at the Fed. Whether the Fed's purchases lead to an increase in the amount of money circulating in the economy, depends on what banks do with the new reserves and on what sellers do with the funds they receive.
0: And this is the Bank of England video which says more money comes into the banks but the channel of that money into the real economy is weak.
2: There's another way the banks purchases of assets could put more money into the economy. Those selling assets to the Bank of England deposit more money into their bank accounts. So commercial banks have more funds which they can use to finance new loans. And more bank lending supports spending and investment. But this channel is likely to be relatively weak as banks continue to repair their finances in the wake of the crisis.
1: So what we're talking about here, Elisa, is the printing of money in effect, which is basically being put into the banks for the creation of more money. There's no real production here. There's nothing being produced. It's all paper. What we need and what we've got a policy of in the Citizens Party is the need for an actual national bank where you create credit, state credit, like, for example, where, actual just real credit, where you spend that money into the community on large infrastructure projects so that at the end of the day you've got an asset. That credit then circulates through the employment of people, through the purchase of resources and that sort of thing, so that you actually stimulate the economy and you're left behind with something real. Mm. This is not the same as quantitative easing. Mm. It's not understood at the present time by the raft of economists we have today because for the last 40 years we've had this policy of economic rationalism, of free trade, globalisation, where you know uh, big government is seen as bad, the idea of state ownership of uh, assets is bad, you've got to sell everything off because you know the government is less efficient than private enterprise... Well, at the moment we're in the process of collapse and that's how efficient this, this whole process is, mm. so-called. You know, it's, just, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. So we've got to go back to the idea of a strong government directing credit into the economy to actually build infrastructure to start with.
2: Mm.
1: Well, that, that includes things like hospitals, you know, it includes roads, water projects, even space exploration because by, the, by expanding our investment into technology, yeah. we can actually expand the economy.
0: Yeah, new cutting-edge technologies transform the way you do work in your economy. And that's right. Yep. Which has a dramatic impact. And it's interesting. Um, this week, Martin North pointed out on one of his, in one of his articles that a number of fund managers are even calling for uh, an alternative to QE, which would be to put equivalent money into spending on infrastructure. Well, they
1: know they're going to have something at the end of There's going to be some actual goods at the end of this. Now, not just putting it in the share market, which is highly inflated. There's actually going to be something left at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, exactly, which, you know, it's just common sense. But one of those fund managers, Sarah Shaw, who's Chief Investment Officer at 4D Infrastructure, which is a global fund, even said, I'll give you an example, China during the GFC... Biggest form of quantitative easing, 35,000 kilometres of high-speed rail. That's the sort of quantitative easing that we should be looking at here in Australia. Now, it wasn't quantitative easing. It was state credit, so she got Mm -hmm. that bit wrong. But the impetus is absolutely correct. You need to build those assets, transform the nation, and you will get the flow-through effect of the transformation of the real economy. So that's what we need to do. And we're going to talk about, after this break, a concrete example of where a government is about to put that onto the table uh, with an upcoming election. Welcome back to the Citizens Report. Who most terrifies the Five-Eyed Monster? Now, we are talking about the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance or spying alliance of the US, UK, Canada, Australia and New Zealand here. And I just want to preface this by saying, look, the biggest battle that we have right now in the world is over economic policy. And that's simply because the global financial system is facing a meltdown far bigger than the previous one in 2008. So the policies, economic policies that are adopted will be what determines you know, whether we live or die, literally. And the policies in the United Kingdom of Jeremy Corbyn, where the election's coming up on the 12th of December, are diametrically opposed to those that we just discussed in the rest of the show, which put the banks first. His policies would rein in criminal bank activity. And the first thing they will do is start with a uh, bank inquiry and where they're going to learn from the mistakes of the Australian Bank Inquiry, where they really get into the nitty gritty. And take real action. And their response, they've already outlined in their policy, is to re regulate banks, including Glass Steagall regulation, bank separation, cracking down on tax havens, establishing a £500 billion national investment bank, which we we're also just talking about, and a network of regional development banks, reinitiating massive public infrastructure works. Ending privatisation and re-nationalising selected privatised assets. And I'll just show a quick clip here which shows why people want this policy shift.
1: For me, close that gap of inequality. <laughs> that is absolutely vital, not only for the people at either end of the scale, but for society as a whole. Austerity has definitely had an impact on our public services.
0: All the cuts from the government, they're just putting people's lives more at risk. What is going on now, especially the last 10 years, it's not working. The pressure is incredible. There's so much poverty and suffering and our our, our society is crumbling.
2: This election is a crucial point to turn the country in a different direction.
0: So it's really no surprise why leading figures, and I'm not going to mention all of them today, but leading figures within... Um, the intelligence networks and government networks of Five Eyes countries have come out attacking Jeremy Corbyn. Um, We had in the last week or so Alexander Downer, our former foreign minister and former ambassador to the UK and who is deeply embedded within uh, what is commonly known as the deep state apparatus, and you can contact us for details if you haven't heard that. Um, He's saying that if Corbyn's elected, Australia should not share sensitive intelligence with the UK and then you had Richard Dearlove, who's the former head of MI6, who declared Corbyn a present danger to the country if he's elected. And he said he would fail to pass the vetting of security, security agencies. Um, he said clearance to classified information would never be extended to anyone with Corbyn's background because he meets with people and has dialogue with people with all kinds of political persuasions. Shocking. Now, you add that to the claims of anti-Semitism against Corbyn, which are ongoing but which are absurd, calling him an apologist for terror. And you can see on the screen, this is from the Daily Mail, um, from a day before the 2017 election, 13 straight pages of smears against Corbyn. This is how they operate. Now, the Dear Love comment, though, is interesting, um, that he said Corbyn would not pass vetting procedures because this week in light of the hysteria against China that's being whipped up again, Peter Harcher, the political editor of the Sydney Morning Herald suggested all MPs, if you're going to run in Australia, be submitted to formal ASIO security clearance measures and that would mean that only those vetted by ASIO and thus by the CIA and MI6 etc by extension through the Five Eyes would be running for Parliament. This would provide exactly the kind of Control and suppression of democracy that the financial and security establishment desperately need as this financial system comes down to prevent the kind of policies being put up Hmm. um, that we're talking about, Craig. And um, look, economic policy is the reason they fear China, I might add, because China has Glass-Steagall Bank separation. They have state credit to grow their economy. And what we see is that the kind of hysteria being put up by 60 Minutes is already being exposed. Numerous experts are speaking up and blowing holes in the stories where, you know, the supposed spy and the guy that was paid to run for Parliament are all, they've got charges against them, fraud, they've conducted fraud, they wouldn't be anywhere near the media as Julie Bishop said if they indeed were considered as actual spies or actual threats by ASIO. So you can read more about it. There's an article: to
1: say that, yeah. Yeah,
0: a thorough article in the Australian Alert Service uh, which goes through some of those holes and more are appearing by the day. Yep. We have run out of time. Yep. Thanks, again. Craig. Thanks, Lisa. Contact us for more information and tune in again next week.